and the idea behind this particular podcast is aimed primarily at the deacon or the person who is in deacon formation. And we're going to walk through the sacraments that the deacon is able to confer step by step and explain the theology of what it is we are doing and why we are doing it. It should be abundantly clear in our church that whatever the right is, the theology speaks through it. If we know the theology, we can possibly do what we can in instruction, in ambiance, in whatever is necessary to help that theology come out. I find that this is a particularly useful understanding of, say, baptism when I am sitting with couples who have come to have their children baptized, and I'm able to give them instruction primarily just from the right. There is a little bit of housekeeping that needs to be taken care of by the deacon who is going to perform a baptism. They need to know the particulars of their diocese, that is, what the diocese, or even down to the parish level, what their parish requires of a couple who are bringing their child to baptism. Now, we know that the normal route for an adult to come to baptism is through the RCIA process. So we're only going to be speaking about children, infants primarily, in these podcasts about baptism. And so if your diocese has a policy that says parents and godparents need to attend classes prior to the baptism, You need to make sure that that happens. The way we do this with people who are maybe godparents outside of your diocese is that they would take the classes somewhere in their parish or their diocese, and they would bring a letter from the person who gave that, best with the parish seal if you can get it, to you or to the pastor to show that they've attended the classes. Now, not every diocese requires that. Most require some sort of pre-baptismal instruction, however, primarily for the parents. And so once that is out of the way and you've gotten all those things squared away, check with your pastor for dates and times and you are free to baptize. Now, if you are going to be doing a baptism for, say, a nephew or a niece or a cousin, and this person resides outside of your diocese, there are a couple of things that you need to make sure you have squared away. One is permission from the pastor of the parish that you are going to. You want to make sure that that person gives you express permission to baptize in that parish on that date and time. That is more than just a courtesy. It is actually a canonical requirement. Now, here in the United States, 
if I travel to another diocese, I need to bring with me a letter from my bishop to that bishop saying that I am in good standing and that I have faculties within my own diocese. This has become more and more common between dioceses, and most bishops now are, are insisting on it. Now, you do not have to carry the letter directly to the other bishop. Bishop to bishop usually uh, works just fine, but for the most part it would be from, say, a chancellor to a chancellor. But I would make sure that I get a copy of that letter and tuck it in my suit jacket so that I have it when I arrive to do the baptism just in case there wasn't enough information passed from that chancery office to the parish. Uh, this is an important thing, guys. Don't mess this up. Now, back to the rest of us. Uh, baptism is the first of the three sacraments of the church that are called sacraments of initiation. The other two are, of course, confirmation and Holy Communion. When one is in full communion with the Catholic Church, they have received all three of those sacraments. I had mentioned something earlier about who was eligible to be baptized, and really it's pretty simple. Any person who has not already been baptized is eligible for baptism, so long as it is their desire, or in the case of an infant, the desire of the parent. These things uh, are good to know. Tuck it in the back of your head. And those of you who might be bringing their children soon to baptism uh, know that your child deserves and, and, and will certainly be given baptism. There have been cases where I've heard of single parents sometimes being turned down. That is not something that should happen. Uh, we welcome the children. And this is also an excellent, excellent opportunity to answer questions or, or help that person who's been away from the church for a while. Uh, so baptism is not only an entrance for the infant, but is sometimes a re-entrance for the parent. The text that I will be using for this presentation is the Rite of Baptism for Children. This is a book that most deacons would have on hand and certainly your parish has on hand. It can be picked up at any Catholic bookstore uh, or even Amazon.com, though I have no direct affiliation with them. It is available through them. And we're going to be focusing primarily on the section in Chapter 2. It is the Baptism of one child. So, because most of the time that's how we will be doing baptisms, at least it's been my experience that we would do one child at a time. It's good to know that there is a right for several children at a time, and sometimes that happens in large parishes with uh, growing uh, families. Uh, sometimes uh, Hispanic parishes may have as many as 10 or 11 or 12 baptisms at one time. And we accommodate that, of course. But in order to teach the baptism theology, I'm going to just use the rite of baptism for one child. 
And so I have now spent about eight minutes of our 15-minute podcast talking about the preliminaries. So let's begin then with the rite. The rite begins with the reception of the child. Now the rubrics, which are the writings in red that give us instructions for what we are supposed to do, speak that it should take place on a Sunday, the day in which the church celebrates the Paschal Mystery. You know, it should always be done in a communal effort, and and that is to express the fact that there are no private sacraments. So couples may say to you, I don't want a baptism for my child uh, during Mass. We want a private baptism. But what they mean is they want it to be just their immediate family. However, I would encourage as many as possible to do the baptism at the Mass because it is also very catechetical for the congregation. And so the first question that is posed to the parents during the rite is this, what name do you give your child? I always encourage the parents to speak the name of the child clearly and loudly so that everyone present can hear because this really is an introduction of the child to the present community of the church. This is immediately followed by another question, what do you ask of God's church for? And then you'll see the big red N in the book. Now, I'm going to use the name Addison Louise, primarily because she was the very first person I ever got a chance to baptize, and I have her name written in my book. So, when you hear Addison Louise, that's who I'm talking about. So, the question, what do you ask of God's church for Addison Louise? Most couples will give the answer of baptism, but there are other things that baptism is called that is uh, certainly valuable or useful to be used in substitute for the word baptism. And these come from the early church father, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, and he wrote this, Baptism is God's most beautiful and magnificent gift. We call it gift, grace, anointing, enlightenment, sorry, garment of immortality, bath of rebirth, seal, and baptism. Gift because it is conferred on those who bring nothing of their own. Grace because it is given even to the guilty. Anointing for it is priestly and royal, as are those who are anointed. Enlightenment because it radiates light. Clothing since it veils our shame. Bath because it washes seals It is our guard and sign of God's lordship and baptism because sin is buried in the water. Following that answer of baptism, we begin with an almost an admonishment of the parents. Uh, One more question that is a little lengthier. You have asked to have your child baptized. In in doing so, you are accepting the responsibility of training her in the practice of the faith. It will be your duty to bring her up to keep God's commandments as Christ taught us by loving God and our neighbor. Do you clearly understand what you are undertaking? 
it's good to hear the parents' the parents' response, and I like to look in their eyes a little bit when they give it. The answer should be, we do. The next question is directed at the godparents. Now, I want to talk about godparents just for a second. They are officially called sponsors. And according to canon law, you may have one or two sponsors, but if you have two, they should be one of each sex. Now, in order to be a sponsor, you must be Catholic, you must be baptized, confirmed, receive the Eucharist, and are living a life in accordance with the Christian virtue. Now, that does not mean you cannot use Aunt Mary, who hasn't stepped foot in a Catholic church for 20 years. So long as Aunt Mary is active in her Christian faith of choice, um, but she cannot be called a sponsor on the paperwork, that person would be called a Christian witness. Now, as to numbers and sex, that's what's in canon law. I know very well that a lot of parishes allow sometimes two sets of godparents, uh, sometimes two male godparents, two female godparents. You know, the truth is, the idea of a, of a sponsor is this. They're there to help the parent guide the child in the faith. Uh, years ago, it would be that if something should happen to the parents and they were to die, then the godparents would raise the children in the faith. Well, that's not up to us anymore. That's something that is up to the courts and to the parents' uh, last will and testament if they had the foresight to have such a thing. So, um, what you're looking for in a godparent is not only the, the qualifications as a sponsor, a Catholic sponsor, of which you really only need one if you're going to use the other person as a, who is a Christian witness. But you want to make sure that that person is close enough to you to keep you, the parent, uh, is what I'm speaking to you now, to keep the parent sort of in line and accountable for their faith. Uh, the godparent should be able to say to the parent, you know, I was at 11.30 Mass yesterday and I didn't see you there. Were you sick? You know, just little things like that. And that is one way, and probably the best way, that most godparents can help to raise the child in the faith is by making sure, as best they can, that they hold the parents accountable. Because most godparents are not in the household with the child. And so we have the question that goes to the godparents. Are you ready to help the parents of this child in their duty as Christian parents? And their response should be, we are. The next is the first sacramental sign of baptism, and it is this. Addison Louise, the Christian community, welcomes you with great joy. In its name, I claim you for Christ our Savior by the sign of his cross. I now trace the cross on your forehead and invite your parents and godparents to do the same. Now, if you think about this, this is a very radical thing for someone to do. I rem remember as a kid watching the uh, moon landing in 1969 uh, 
of Apollo 11 and seeing the flag planted on the moon. And what I remember about that is that I really believe now that the moon belonged to the United States. We put the flag there. Now we know that that is not true. However, this symbol, the cross, is like planting a flag. I claim you for Jesus Christ. You are going to become Jesus Christ's. And in making that symbol, we are planting our Christian flag uh, on that person as a way of looking at it. And so the uh, sign of the cross is traced on the forehead. Next we come to the celebration of God's Word, and I think this is a good place for us to stop off and call her done. And the next time we get together for this series, we will pick up with the celebration of God's Word. And until we speak again, Shalom and peace be with you.